So we're going to take a break um, from the paradigm, and we're actually going to talk about this fall. Uh, we're going to talk about tables, which some of y'all are familiar with, some of you are not. Um, tables are, in effect, Hope Brooklyn's form of small groups. And they're really important for us. They're really important. Uh, don't believe us, believe psychology, all right? Everyone says, uh, psychologists say that if you want deep transformation to happen uh, in someone's life, it probably doesn't happen in large groups. It happens in small groups, which is why churches have always been um, pushing small groups. Or, or I would say, hey, I want you to be here on Sunday mornings, but I'd much rather you be part of a table, all right? Now, that's not permission for you not to show up on our Sunday corporate gatherings. I still want you here. There's a line in one of Paul's letters where he goes, um, he goes, I wish all of you spoke in tongues, but I'd rather you prophesy. Okay, that's sort of the same thing. I, I want all of you here, but if you have to choose, which you don't, but if you have to choose, which you don't, but if you have to choose, be part of a table because that's where transformation is going to happen. That's where intimacy develops. And so I want to talk about what tables are going to be this next year for Hope Brooklyn. Uh, if you've been a part of one, if you've not, I'm glad you're here because they're changing a little bit. Uh, what you're going to find is they're going to retain their sort of core philosophy, but we're going to sort of flesh them out a little differently. And so before we talk about um, what they're going to be, I want to talk about sort of what they are and why they are what they are. And we, we sort of sum up tables in this way at Hope Brooklyn. We say they're a meal with an open invitation. A meal with an open invitation. Historically, and by that I just simply mean uh, in the church in America, uh, historically, small groups have been groups of people, um, groups of, of predominantly Christians, or that is to say, those who look at Jesus and accept his claims about himself, and exclusively Christians. And though that's important for those of us who call Jesus Lord to be around one another, uh, it's incomplete in a small group form. And I want to uh, argue why I think that's the case from the gospel narratives. So for those of you who don't know, Hope Brooklyn has three pillars that sort of uphold our community. One, we are crowds and disciples. Two, we are a community of the story. And three, we eat together face to face. And I wanna look at number one, we are crowds and disciples. Where, where is that coming from? What does that mean? Well, really where that comes from is the trajectory of Jesus's ministry. What you find when you read the gospel of counts of Jesus of Nazareth is that and I made this little graphic um, as best I could. Alice made it a lot better for us. You find this to be the case. When you read the story of the gospels, you see one central character. It's Jesus. He is the defining character. All the action revolves around him. And surrounding Jesus, you have different minor characters, sub-characters. And two of them, I mean, you have the Pharisees, which are like the religious leaders of, of Israel, uh, but you also have Rome, uh, the Roman imperial power, such as Pontius Pilate and other centurions and stuff like that. But two of the important characters are narratively called crowds and disciples. And the best way to sort of differentiate what does it mean to be a crowd or a disciple or where you are in that, on that spectrum the crowds followed Jesus not because they accepted his claims about himself, uh, that he's the Lord, that he's the key to the universe, that his love is so great and so 
encompassing. It will swallow them up. Not because they accepted those claims, but because uh, they wanted to be healed from leprosy. Because they wanted to hear a really good sermon. They were still figuring out who this guy Jesus is and what they thought about him. Disciples, on the other hand, were following this guy Jesus and they're saying, okay, I accept who you say you are. You are the Messiah. You're the Lord's anointed. You're the savior of the world and of Israel. But what you find is you find both of these groups following Jesus, not partitioned apart, but together. Jesus is going and they're both sort of following and keeping up. So there's sort of a blurring of the lines between who's who in the ministry of Jesus. Are you, I mean, do you, do you believe in this guy or, or, or not? Oh, I, yeah, do you believe in him? I'm not sure yet, you know? And if we're being honest, you find like Judas Iscariot that he started by believing, but by the end of his life, he was so disillusioned by what he saw, I'm not sure he would call himself a disciple anymore. So there's this spectrum, which is why Hope Brooklyn says, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, on the spectrum of what you call Jesus and whether you accept his claims about himself or not, there's room for you at the table. And what I wanna do is I wanna sort of use this idea and I wanna use one passage from the book of Matthew to sort of highlight why, um, why this is the case and then consequently why our small groups called tables are the way they are, all right? So go with me. This comes from Matthew 4. This is the start of Matthew's gospel um, and it's very common. You see this same similar um, um, introduction in Mark's gospel as well. So that's how it reads. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. He's beginning his ministry. And this is what he preached. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. And large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So that's sort of like a microcosmic um, epitomization of what the journey of discipleship is, what Jesus is after, and what he's inviting all of us into. And I see three elements involved here. First, the first element, the journey of discipleship begins with an announcement. The journey of discipleship begins with an announcement. Notice Jesus shows up and when he begins his ministry, he announces something. What does he say? He says, hey, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. I'm not sure if you know this, the word repent uh, is metanoia in the Greek. Meta means change, noia means mind. So in a sense, what he's saying for repentance is change your thinking. 
Change your thinking about what? About God, about the kingdom. It's come back. The king has returned. Aslan is on the move. I don't think he said that last one, but it'd be really cool if he did. So the journey of discipleship begins with an announcement. It begins with a proclamation about a shifting in the world's reality. God has drawn near in a way that he hasn't in times past. And guess what? You don't have to be afraid. It's really, really good news. It's going to look vastly different, but it's really, really good for you and for everyone else. Now, this is important, guys. This is important. Um, Because as Leslie Newbegin says, he goes, Paul, who was one of the first church planters, Paul presents himself not as the teacher of a new theology, but as the messenger commissioned by the authority of the, of the Lord to announce a new fact. Namely, that in the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has acted decisively to reveal and redeem the whole world. The gospel, the good news, exclusively is a statement, is an announcement of a fact that has happened and is happening in the world. And it's kind of independent on whether you believe in it or not. This is important. Paul does not position himself um, saying that to be a Christian is to accept behavioral standards. That's not what it is. Nor does he say to be a Christian is to adopt a new system of beliefs about God. Both of those are secondary. They'll come later. Behavior and beliefs will come later. Being a Christian, that is to say, being someone who acknowledges Jesus' claims about himself, is fundamentally to acknowledge that the structure of the reality of the world has shifted irrevocably. God has returned to his creation, and he's not giving it back. The light has dawned back into the darkness, and you can't stop it. It will win out. You can choose whether to receive it or not, but you cannot stop it. The good news, the gospel, is that God has done something to the world that can't be undone through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We have extra biblical uh, literature showing that the first Christians weren't liked by the Roman people. And they weren't like, not because they were bad citizens, they were actually model citizens, which was so confusing for the Romans. They were upstanding citizens. The issue was they couldn't keep their faith private. They couldn't just believe their own thing. They kind of talked about it too much. It affected the way they lived. And the reason being, I hope you see this, is because for the first Christians, Christianity was not something privatized, that they, that only affected them and no one else. Christianity was a fact about the reality of existence. It was a fact about the world. Something has happened that's changing the entire world. And that doesn't just affect me, that affects you too. So they couldn't keep it private. And, and this makes sense, right? Like when you consider Jesus was exterminated, right? He was crucified. Why? No one is crucified, no one is killed. He was was killed for being a political threat, but no one is killed for being a spiritual guru. Rome doesn't care if there's a spiritual guru over there attracting a following. Rome cares is what 
this person is saying affects their rule. You're killed for being a traitor to the powers that be. And that's exactly what the gospel is. The rightful king has returned and he's not giving back sovereignty or authority. He's really good. He's really good, but he's not giving it back. So the first thing you see in the journey of discipleship is an announcement. This is the good news. And then what you see after Jesus announces the kingdom of heaven is drawn near, he calls the first disciples. And he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. Now what's interesting about that, there actually, there might be more, but at least in, in uh, the biblical narratives, there are two ways to say follow me. One is the Greek uh, akulutheto, and the other is what we have here, dute opisomu. And I, why that's fascinating, you can see, I think the slide's up there, it's much more wooden. Jesus is not saying, follow me. He's saying, come my back. He's saying, come behind me. He's saying, if you wanna be my disciple, position yourself directly behind me and where I go, you go. He's saying, take steps behind me. And I think that's really interesting because what it means is that one who is a disciple, one who looks at Jesus and goes, I accept your claims about yourself as the savior, is one who is obeying Jesus's command and is standing behind him, following Jesus where he goes, where he went. Secondly, to be a disciple is to have your past way of life transformed. Notice, Jesus goes to fishermen, follow, come behind me, come my back, and I will make you fishers of people. He did not say to fishermen, come behind me and I'm gonna make you rabbis. He didn't say, come behind me and I'm gonna make you investors. No, he says, you're still gonna be fishermen. You're gonna be doing it a little differently now. And this is super important for later. Hold on to this. Jesus does not destroy the passions and the desires and the loves and the skills inside each of us. He actually redirects them. He brings them to life in a new way. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's uh, quote, which I really love. He says, what we want is not more little books about Christianity, but more little books by Christians on other subjects. We don't need more little books about Christianity. Are you in education? Write a book about education from the Christian vantage. Are you in finance? Write a book about finance from the Christian perspective. In a couple weeks, in the month of September, we're actually gonna do a mini-series called Faith and Work. And we're actually gonna discuss that. What is the intersection of this story and our, our jobs, our vocations? But we're not there today. For Jesus, right after he announces what the good news is, then he says, come behind me, directly stand behind me, follow where I go, and I'm gonna take your old way of life and I'm gonna transform it. It's gonna be redirected. And then, and this is key, what is his method of discipleship? This is gonna play into what we're talking about with tables in a minute. What is Jesus's method of discipleship? Notice, when he calls the 12, he does not take them into the desert for a three-year seminar where they read Henry Nouwen books or something. He doesn't take them into the desert. He doesn't remove them from the world, the corrupting world, and say, let me impart to you spiritual knowledge. Let me transmit information to you. What does he do? He says, come behind me, go where I go, and he plunges straight 
into the middle of a world that does not accept who he is. He goes straight into it. He plunges straight into the kingdom's lifestyle. He teaches, he heals the sick, he touches lepers, he eats with sinners, he upsets the status quo. Discipleship for Jesus is clearly not removal from a world that does not know him or accept him, but plunging straight into that world. Mark 3.14 says, and he appointed 12, whom he also called apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message. The word apostle is the Greek apostolos. It literally means a messenger, one who is sent out. Comes from apostello, which means I proclaim, I report, I tell. To be an apostle, to be a disciple, is one who goes and tells, one who goes and proclaims, one who goes out. This is why this is important as it relates to our small groups, okay? We're all here, well, I shouldn't say that. Um, something about the story of Jesus is compelling all of us. So we're, we're, we're interested in learning more. And some of us here who might say, all right, I'm, I'm following this guy, Jesus. I want to um, give my life to learn from him, to follow him. So if that's the case, if discipleship is the word that describes that process of being shaped into the image of Jesus, if discipleship for churches is a cloistering away, if it's a removal from a world that does not know Jesus, we have stopped coming behind him. And therefore, we've stunted our discipleship because we've fundamentally forgotten who he is. I wanna make the claim rather, don't get angry at me, just go with me, okay? Promise you'll stay seated until the end of the service, all right? I wanna make the claim that discipleship is evangelism. Now we need to define these terms, yes. But discipleship, to be made more like Jesus, is to be around those who aren't like him. It's evangelism. In fact, we become more like Christ the more we're around those who are nothing like him. Living in light of this overjoyous fact that God has acted decisively in the world through Jesus of Nazareth. Now, just so you know, qualification. That's gonna be super messy, friends. It's gonna be super messy. It's not gonna be neat lines and rows of, oh, in this situation, consult a one in the manual. Okay, okay, I got it, I do this. Oh, and this, you know, now this is happening, this variable is added into it. Uh, B7, B7, okay, that's not gonna be it. It's gonna be messy. But as I study the biblical record of Jesus's ministry, that's what I see. That's what I see. And here's the other key, and this is absolutely crucial to the, our understanding of the gospel. It is not, it is not that we have the light and we're going out to a world of darkness that does not have the light. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. The gospel is that the light has dawned back into the world and has spread everywhere. The gospel to be a disciple is to come behind Jesus and goes where he goes. And what I'm suggesting is that Jesus has already gone ahead of us to those who don't know him and don't receive him yet. And therefore to be a disciple is not to take the light anywhere, it's to catch up with the light. It's to catch up. Jesus is already at work. The gospel is to call forth the light that's already inside everyone. 
struggling to grow brighter and brighter and brighter. And how do we call out the light? How do we announce that? Love, (laughs) plain and simple, love. A putting of the other person above yourself to such degree that you're willing to sacrifice for them, which is the ultimate form of love. But make sure we're key on this. We're not taking Jesus to the world. Jesus is already there. We're finding where he's at work. We're discovering how he's already there and we're calling it out. So what does that mean? Well, it means historically, as I said earlier, the church evolved into this place where people come to be spiritually fed. People show up and we impart spiritual nourishment and they are fed. And though that's true, that is true and it's good. We gather here as a community to worship together, to carry each other's burdens together, to mourn together, to celebrate together. That's all true. It's also incomplete. That's not in the New Testament. The New Testament understanding of the word church is a group of people who exist to be apostles, who exist to be witnesses to this fact that God has returned to the world and he's loving it back to life. That's why we exist. We don't come to church to be fed. We are the church and we exist to be eaten on by the world which brings back that fishy metaphor from earlier. We we eat on the bait and then we are the bait that's eaten on later on. I thought that was kind of clever, but obviously I didn't, that's cool, that's fine. I was like, I see what you're doing there. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. The gospel is that the light is all over and it's for us to name it and to call it out, to call it brighter, to kindle the flame that's already at work to follow him. Evangelism is that the light has already dawned and it's hazy in places, but it's already dawned there. If we wanna be more like Jesus, we have to follow him there and call it out. And when the church adopts a posture of looking inward to feed ourselves, we can call it many things, but at its core, it's fear, it's fear. Now, you stood with me, thank you so much. What might be your objections to this view? And I know there are some, okay? What might be objections to this view of discipleship as evangelism? Well, the first might be this, and it's brilliantly put in the classic song, Come Thou Fount. In the third verse, what do we sing? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What is the the author saying, the, the lyricist saying? Saying that the story is such that we are all on this spectrum, that it's not easy to follow Jesus. And so if you're saying that what we have to do is follow the light where Jesus is already at work, how do we make sure that we don't fall away, fall backwards? I mean, what protects us? What you see in Luke 10 is Jesus says this, after that, the Lord appointed 70 others and he sent them out in pairs to every town and place where he was going. Jesus always sends his followers out in pairs. Paul had Barnabas, Peter had James, the 12 had each other, the 70 were sent in teams. We're always sent in teams, we're never sent alone. Now that might be a minor issue, a minor objection. Here's probably the big objection to this view of discipleship as evangelism. The big objection I've heard in this phrase, 
I don't want to make people into projects, right? Isn't that the big objection? I don't want to turn this person into a project who I have to save. First of all, no one said anything about saving anyone, okay? That actually is the old understanding of evangelism. Evangelism as information transmission. Evangelism as the colonialist project. That is, we are the enlightened, civilized, um, light-bearing people, and we're going to the heathens, and we're bringing them the light of the gospel. And that's not at all what the gospel is. The gospel is the king has returned, and he's everywhere. He's everywhere. The light has returned, and the light cannot be stopped. Rather, it's for us to follow him and to call out the light that is within each and every person, each and every culture. The binary, friends, is not Christian, non-Christian. Like we said, Judas probably would have been called from everyone's perspective a Christian, but he ended his life by betraying him, which we don't get to call him anything. I'm not sure exactly what that makes him. But the binary is not Christian, non-Christian. The binary, if we need to put one in, is Jesus and all the rest of us. Jesus has returned to all the rest of us. And slowly the light is dawning. And slowly everyone is either turning their faces toward this light or turning their faces away from this light. And to be a disciple is to invite people to start turning their faces toward this story. This story that does not come to enslave. This story that does not come to, object, to, to oppress. This story that comes to set free and to bring to life in a way that's never been experienced. So yeah, I don't want to make people into projects if that was your idea. Not at all flatten someone out into this two-dimensional binary? No, no thanks. And I don't think that's what Jesus is about either. Jesus is about bringing people to life, revealing to them that much of what their hearts have always said has been true, just a tad incomplete. Or if your objection is, I don't wanna make people into projects, is this idea that it's a coercive project meant to bring people into the dark halls of institutional religion. Well then, yeah, I'm against that as well. I'm not for the dark halls or coercion of anything. That, that's not what the gospel is. That's not what Hope Brooklyn is gonna be either. The good news is that the king has returned to his world and Jesus has already gone ahead of us and it's a liberation project. Our project is watching and joining as the light brings the entire world back to life. As the light exposes the darkness, names the darkness for what it is and eradicates the darkness. We get to join in that. That's what the gospel is. I love how Richard Stearns puts it. Uh, he's the CEO of World Vision. He says, Christianity is a faith that was meant to be spread. It was, but not through coercion. God's love was intended to be demonstrated, not dictated. Our job is not to manipulate or induce others to agree with us or to leave their religion and embrace Christianity. I'll say that again, our job is not to induce others to, to leave their religion and embrace Christianity. That's not our job. Our charge is to both proclaim and embody the good news so that others can see, hear, and feel God's love in tangible ways. When we are living out our faith with integrity and compassion in the world, God can use us to give others a glimpse of his love and character. It is God and not us who works in the hearts of men and women to forgive and redeem. Evangelism, the good news, is the wedding feast. It's the table that has been set in the midst of this world. Jesus has returned and set a table and he said, everyone's invited to it. Everyone, everyone. Go, go invite people to the table. 
Go bring them to the table. They're all, don't worry, I took care of the rest. Bring people to the table. Which brings us to our last point. If that's what this is, then how do we go out? And I return to Jesus's call of the disciples. Come behind me and I will make you fishers of people. Jesus does not obliterate our past. He does not obliterate our passions. He completes them. I return to C.S. Lewis. What we want are not more little books about Christianity, but more little books by Christians on other subjects. There's a parable that Jesus tells. And he says, um, there's a landowner. And the landowner calls three of his servants. He says, I'm going away. And he gives three of his servants, he gives them money, basically. He gives the first one five coins. He gives the second one two coins. And he gives the third one one coin. I don't know why he gave them different amounts, but he did, okay? He leaves. And the first one and the second one immediately rush out and they start putting their money to work. Um, Hopefully through reputable means, but we don't know. The story doesn't tell us. But they put their money to work. The third one grows afraid um, because in his or her own words, I know the master is a hard man, reaping where he has not sown, gathering where he did not plant. And so he hides his one coin and the master returns and he calls his servants to account. And the first one says, hey, you gave me five, here's five more, 10. And he's like, oh, well done, great job. And the second one goes, you gave me two, here's two more, multiplied it. Oh, well done, great job. And the third one brings back the one and goes, I I was scared of you. I was scared because I know you're a hard man. You gather where you don't sow. And the master goes, you foolish and lazy servant. Give me back the one. And scholars and commentators have been confused for years about what this means. And I'm not gonna give you the answer today. I don't know exactly, all right? Um, But I do say there, there is an obvious point to this story that's often overlooked. And it's this, the money that was given to the servants was a gift with no condition. It was a gift. They were given, they had nothing and the master gave them money. It's a gift. The gospel is a gift. What I'm suggesting is that Jesus has given each of us gifts, passions, talents, skills. And in a sense, he's saying, go put them to work. Go put them to work. Better you put them to work and lose them than never put them to work at all. Because that fundamentally misunderstands the nature of a gift. It wasn't yours in the first place. Like we said earlier, the gospel is extended training and being dispossessed. Nothing is ours. Imagine the freedom we would approach our lives if we realized that none of this is ours. And God's saying, go play. Go put it to work. You can't lose it. It's not yours in the first place. Go take risks. Because it's my money that you're risking. It's okay. Don't tell your spouse that, okay? All right, have a conversation with that first. What I'm suggesting is that the kingdom is a wedding feast. And Jesus is going, I want everyone there. I'm working. The light is working to bring everyone there. But I've given you a gift, a passion, a desire finance, education, law, the arts. I don't need you to leave it behind to become a Christian. I gave it to you. Put it to work. Allow me to work through it. Come behind me and I will make you an investor for the kingdom. 
Come behind me and I will make you an educator for the kingdom. Come behind me and I will make you a mother for the kingdom. Come behind me and I will make you an artist for the kingdom. Or Tina Fey said it really well. She said, say yes, you'll figure it out later. I think Jesus would say the same thing to each of you. That he's looking at you going, I've given you something. I'm nudging your heart in a direction. Say yes, you'll figure it out later. That's the gospel, that's the movement of the church. Or as Erwin McManus says, when the church becomes an institution, people are nothing more than volunteers to be recruited or two-dimensional projects to be converted. When the church is a movement, our stewardship becomes the unleashing of our God-given gifts, talents, and passions. My goal is not to cast a vision that everyone buys into, but to create a visional community where everyone who enters in begins to have wild and God-sized dreams and visions. Or, as Henry Van Dyke puts it, use what talents you possess. The woods would be very silent if no birds sang there, except those that sang best. So I wanna conclude with two stories. And then we're gonna talk about where tables are going. And these stories both come from, um, well, the first one comes from our, our Hope Church community. There was a guy in Hope Astoria. He felt like God was asking him to start something for youth. He didn't know what that meant. He didn't have a teenager in his house. Uh, as he prayed about it more, he sort of, it felt like it sort of evolved into B-boys. So he wanted to start something for the B-boy, which is like the breakdance crew. Um, he was not a B-boy himself, nor had he ever been. He's like, this is foolish. I have no skills or passion in this area. This is kind of defying everything I just said. Um, but that's what he felt. That's what he felt nudged. And so he said yes. Said yes. Ended up, sort of stumbled through it, but he ended up renting space where the Hope Astoria Church met and started getting the word out to b-boys so they can come and practice for free. Most of the b-boys would not call themselves followers of Jesus, uh, but they do know that this guy is a follower uh, and they know that he's doing this from love. And so they come, he doesn't preach at them, he doesn't do anything, he just opens up space for them to come and, and practice. It's grown to a community of about 20, 25 uh, b-boys who some of them come to Hope Astoria and then stay for practice afterwards now. There was one particular guy um, who came and uh, was not a Christian, would not call himself a follower of Jesus. And one day he found out he was diagnosed with cancer. And this is 18 year old kid going, well, what do I do? Um, obviously traumatized. Well, uh, the, the guy who had started this ministry goes, hey, I don't know if this is weird, but our church is having uh, like this sort of prayer and worship night. And if you feel comfortable, I'd love for you to come. And, and we believe in this thing called prayer. And I know it might seem really weird, but we believe that God hears our prayers and uh, would love to maybe bring you along and, and pray with you. And so he was like, okay. So he decided to come. So he came to the prayer and worship night. Um, a group gathered around him, prayed with him, laid hands on him. Uh, he went back to the doctor and the cancer was completely gone which doesn't surprise me, it shocked the heck out of him. <laughs> Became a Christian, gave his life to Jesus, and said, whoever this God is who heals cancer like that, he's worth me figuring out more of his story. Started going to Hope Midtown, all right? Another story in tandem with this. Um, a guy, a church planter actually, um, who planted a church in Queens and ended up failing. Um, and maybe that's the wrong word to use because who knows how to, you can call anything success or failure, but it ended up stop gathering. 
And so he's like, well, what do we do now? And he felt like God say, start a restaurant. And he goes, well, you're crazy because I have never worked in the restaurant world at all. And the more he prayed about it, that nudge would not go away, start a restaurant. So he's like, oh my gosh, okay. So he and his brother went into business and they started a restaurant in Midtown East. Um, they were gonna do a San Diego burger joint because that's what they knew. That's where they were from, it's sort of the LA area. Um, two or three weeks before their restaurant was supposed to open, they got the inspection back and they found out that the pipes in their building were too small to have a fryer. So they couldn't do a burger joint anymore. Two or three weeks before they were to open. Oh, also, they have no restaurant experience and they opened a restaurant in New York City where Michelin starred restaurants are out of business in two years. Who does this? Two weeks before. So he's like, this, this is the most ridiculous decision I ever made. It's gonna fail. What do we do? Well, they're from LA. They have Polynesian in their family. They decided to open a poke restaurant because they knew poke. This was about a year before the poke craze swept New York City. New York Times came in, wrote a piece on their restaurant and it's been named one of the best poke restaurants in Manhattan. Oh, also they hired that kid, the B-boy who, who was cured of cancer and now he works for them in Midtown East. Say yes, you'll figure it out later. One other story um, and a little bit of a sadder one, but an honest one, a true one. So during seminary, uh, I worked at a, a craft beer shop, a bottle shop, and one of the owners um, her fiance would come in all the time. And uh, he was a really cool guy. He and I had probably nothing in common. He had a really tough upbringing. I had a very, I had a nice upbringing. Um, he had stories that I listened to and be like, I don't even know how to respond to this story. I have literally never made those types of decisions. <laughs> um, but for whatever reason, we just connected. We just connected. I could sense that he just had a hard life. He had a really hard life. And I felt God nudging me, hang out with him, pursue him, just have beer with him, um, go get food, just befriend him. But I had just started dating Anna long distance. Um, I was working part-time and in school full-time. I had tons of excuses, so I never did. I talked with him at, while at work, but we never pursued intentional time. Um, we lost touch. I find out about a year later, or a couple years later, uh, that he and his fiance broke up and he ended up committing suicide. Uh, a very tragic ending. And I don't s s believe that it's as simplistic as if I had said yes to the nudge that you know, he would still be here. But it does beg the question of every day, God is nudging our hearts toward one direction or another. Whether you're a Christian or not, I think if you're here, you've had moments of transcendence. You've had moments where you felt like the universe is conspiring to bring you toward a certain direction. And you don't know what to call that. I have a, I have a theory, but we can just figure this out together, you and I. Um, say yes. Say yes to the nudges. You don't know what's gonna happen. Generally, if you wanna know it's God, he's gonna ask you to start a restaurant even though you've never worked in restaurants before. But say yes. You'll figure it out later. So let's come full circle to tables. What are tables? We started by saying tables are meals with an open invitation. We have three pillars of Hope Brooklyn. We're crowds and disciples, we're a community of the story, and we share food and drink. Tables are the name describing the groups of us who were sent out to have many wedding feasts all across the city. 
because we become more like Jesus when we set the table and we invite everyone to it. Our colleagues, our neighbors, our friends, we invite all to the table. Now here's where things change from what they've been. In the past, tables have been uh, simply dinners in the neighborhoods where we live. But we found that that's tough because people have various schedules, people have various passions. And so what we wanted to do this time around is an experiment, an experiment in collective ownership and collective passion uh, and a collective call. So here's what we're gonna do. Now, this fall, we're gonna have three table types, three tables. We're giving you the core philosophy, you flesh it out together. Because I believe that God has put something on your hearts and he's nudging you in a direction. And my, my, uh, my begging for you is just to say yes. Figure it out later, but just say yes. So we're gonna have three table types. The first is classic. Classic tables are meals in the neighborhoods where you live. So say you work from home and you live in Crown Heights. So we're gonna find a group of people who also live in Crown Heights, who have time after their days at work and start a group which meets in the local pub in Crown Heights or meets in someone's home. You're gonna have, um, you're gonna order seamless, invite your friends and neighbors to it, discuss your lives, discuss a devotional, discuss the sermon, a Henry Nouwen book, go to concerts, volunteer in local shelters, do life together in the neighborhoods where you live and always share a meal with it. The second table is gonna be work. I'm just gonna describe these and I'm gonna explain how we're gonna form them. The second table is gonna be work. These are meals in neighborhoods or industries where you work. So I've heard from some of you, I don't know if it's true, but apparently like Wall Street consumes your life. That, is that, Dave, is that true? <laughs> I've heard Wall Street is, is kind of like a, a long job where you go to work early and you come home late. So the last thing you wanna do is come home and then go to a table in someone's neighborhood. Awesome. Well, what if your table is that you find colleagues and friends who work in Wall Street, both maybe two or three Hope Brooklyn people, and then you invite some friends, and once a week, once every two weeks, you meet, meet at a, a restaurant for lunch. And you meet together and you discuss how work's going, you discuss the intersection of gospel and finance, um, you, you discuss a passage of scripture, you encourage one another, you pray for one another. Your table is put right in the middle of your busy schedule. We're not asking you to add more to it, we're asking you to take inventory of where you already are and what's best, what, what's the best way for your schedule to be conducive for intimacy. And then the last one is affinity, an affinity table. So these are meals around the passions that you have. So maybe you love to run. Find two other people that love to run and then once a Monday, once every Monday, um, Go for a run with your group of friends. Stop off at the local pub at the end of the run and discuss Jesus calling. Or maybe um, you, you work at Goldman Sachs and you love to work out. Work out on, on Monday morning. Invite your friends to work out and then say, hey, we're gonna have breakfast together. And then you do that and discuss the sermon. Maybe you're new moms and you wanna do a support group for new mothers. And so then you invite your friends to that. Maybe you're passionate about prison reform and you wanna get engaged. Maybe you're passionate about ice cream and you wanna try all the various ice cream flavors that Brooklyn has to offer. Get a group, say, hey, we're gonna be an ice cream table. And every Thursday, we're gonna to go to a new ice cream spot. We're gonna discuss Henry Nowen or we're gonna discuss Brene Brown or whatever. 
Let it be around the passions that you have, all right? So I know you're all experiencing a lot of anxiety right now because you're like, what is he about to ask us to do, okay? Yeah, no, I know, I know you well. This is, what, what is it? Introvert's nightmare right now. So this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna take communion. If the worship team wants to come back up, we're gonna take communion. Um, during this time, I want you to pray. I want you to pray and think, which of these three is God nudging you to get involved in? And then we're gonna go upstairs and we're gonna share brunch together. And brunch is gonna be a little different today. Uh, it's gonna be a mixer. Yeah, mixers, come on guys. It's gonna be a mixer. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna have conversations. Anna is up there and she's gonna facilitate the whole thing. And we're gonna have conversations around these three ideas. And you're gonna talk with one another and figure out, oh, are you passionate about the affinity table? Um, what are you passionate about? Running? Oh, me too. We're gonna listen to ideas. You don't have to stay at one table. You talk about work, talk about, oh, I work in the medical profession. What if we had a group of people that met at this hospital once every two weeks? Just so you know, the conversations that come out of today are not final and you are not bound to them, okay? These are brainstorming. This is exploring what the community is passionate about and what God might be inviting us into this fall. If you're here today and you're like, I cannot plan and lead this, don't worry, you're not. It's gonna be shared ownership. It's gonna be shared leadership. If you're here today and you're like, I don't have an idea or a nudge, awesome. Go upstairs and hear some other ideas. Just start talking and I'm sure ideas will flow from that. If you're here today and you say, I don't have time to be in one, I would lovingly suggest, yes, you do with this schema because you're gonna choose the one that best fits your schedule. But if you press further and say, no, I don't, totally fine, go upstairs and eat. We have charcuterie, we have olives, we got like this lemonade spritzer drink, it's gonna be awesome. And last, I know it's gonna be a little awkward, friends. I know it is. Push into the awkwardness. We live in a day and age where we are consumed by digital conversations, which make it harder and harder for us to actually have real conversations. Push into it. Hope Brooklyn is church for the rest of us. We're, we're full of awkward people. That's the beauty of this place, all right? Push into those conversations together. They're not final. They're brainstorming and tentative. This is where we're going. What is God asking of you? Just say yes. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this community. I thank you for the people here. I ask you quell people's fears. And I ask that you speak your words of truth and love to your people. Tell them you're with them. Tell them you will not forsake them. Tell them that to be like you is to follow you where you're going. To be like you is to be in a community, in a world where all of us are struggling to come to terms with this new fact that Jesus is alive and that his name is going out to every nation, every people. Lord, will you speak to people's hearts right now as they silence their own? And will you nudge them? Give them a category, give them a word, tell them, hey, I want you to be a part of this. I want you to join this. I want you to start or help start this. 
And if they protest and say, well, I know nothing of that, tell them, but you know a lot about me and you know I'm gonna be with you. Lord, you're alive. Make Hope Brooklyn a place wherever people are in their spiritual journey. They find room here. They find a home here. They find a place here to explore, to question, to doubt. Lord, make us a people that pursues your word, pursues your story, that talks about it, that has it written on our hearts. And make us a people that throws feasts everywhere. Speak to your people today, Lord. We love you. Amen.